Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Roe to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to roco snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. snoozecast.com and follow us on Instagram at snoozecast to find behind the scenes content. If you enjoy our show, please write a review on the Apple Podcasts app or share your favorite episode on social media. Also, share us with a friend. If you would like to get an email once a week with upcoming sleep stories and other news, Subscribe to the Snooze Letter at snoozecast.com. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters and by sailors, cork cutters, and diamond polishers. Tonight, we'll read the opening to the second novel featuring Sherlock Holmes, The Sign of the Four. It was published in 1890 and written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Sherlock referred to himself as a consulting detective in the stories, and is known for his proficiency with observation, deduction, forensic science, and logical reasoning that borders on the fantastic. Written from the point of view of Holmes' friend Dr. Watson, the Sign of the Four has a complicated plot involving a stolen treasure and a secret pact among four convicts. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed.
Holmes put his fingertips together and leaned his elbows on the arms of his chair, like one who has a relish for conversation. My mind, he said, rebels at stagnation. Give me problems. Give me work. Give me the most abstruse cryptogram or the most intricate analysis, and I am in my own proper atmosphere. I can dispense, then, with artificial stimulants, but I abhor the dull routine of existence. I crave for mental exaltation. That is why I have chosen my own particular profession, or rather created it, for I am the only one in the world. The only unofficial detective, I said, raising my eyebrows. The only unofficial consulting detective, he answered. I am the last and highest court of appeal in detection. When Gregson, or Lestrade, or Jones are out of their depths, which, by the way, is their normal state, the matter is laid before me. I examine the data as an expert and pronounce a specialist's opinion. I claim no credit in such cases. My name figures in no newspaper. The work itself the pleasure of finding a field for my peculiar powers is my highest reward. But you have yourself had some experience of my methods of work in the Jefferson Hope case. Yes, indeed, said I, cordially. I was never so struck by anything in my life. I even embodied it in a small brochure with the somewhat fantastic title of a study in scarlet. He shook his head sadly. I glanced over it, said he. Honestly, I cannot congratulate you upon it. Detection is, or ought to be, an exact science and, and should be treated in the same cold and unemotional manner you have attempted to tinge it with romanticism, which produces much the same effect as if you worked a love story or an elopement into the fifth proposition of Euclid. But the romance was there, I protested. I could not tamper with the facts. Some facts should be suppressed, or at least a just sense of proportion should be observed in treating them. The only point in the case which deserved mention was the curious analytical reasoning from the effects to causes by which I succeeded in unraveling it. I was annoyed at this criticism of a work which had been specially designed to please him. I confess, too, that I was irritated 
by the egotism which seemed to demand that every line of my pamphlet should be devoted to his own special doings. More than once during the years that I had lived with him in Baker Street, I had observed that a small vanity underlay my companion's quiet and didactic manner. I made no remark, but sat nursing my wounded leg. I had a Jezail bullet through it some time before, and though it did not prevent me from walking, it ached wearily at every change of the weather. My practice has extended recently to the continent, said Holmes, after a while, filling up his old briar root pipe. I was consulted last week by Francois, who, as you probably know, has come rather to the front lately in the French detective service. He has all the Celtic power of quick intuition, but he is deficient in the wide range of exact knowledge, which is essential to the higher developments of his art. The case was concerned with a will and possessed some features of interest. I was able to refer him to two parallel cases, the one at Riga in 1857 and the other at St. Louis in 1871, which have suggested to him the true solution. Here is the letter which I had this morning acknowledging my assistance. He tossed over, as he spoke, a crumpled sheet of foreign notepaper. I glanced my eyes down at it, catching a profusion of notes of admiration. With stray, magnifique, all testifying to the ardent admiration of the Frenchman. He speaks as a pupil to his master, said I. Oh, he rates my assistance too highly, said Sherlock Holmes lightly. He has considerable gifts himself. He possesses two out of three qualities necessary for the ideal detective. He has the power of observation and that of deduction. He is only wanting in knowledge and that may come in time. He is now translating my small works into French. Your works? Oh, didn't you know? He cried, laughing. Yes, I have been guilty of several monographs. They are all upon technical subjects. Here, for example, is one. Upon the distinction between the ashes of the various tobaccos. In it, I enumerate 140 forms of cigar, cigarette, and pipe tobacco, with colored plates illustrating the difference in the ash. It is a point which is continually turning up in criminal trials, and which is sometimes of supreme importance as a clue. You have an extraordinary genius for minutia, I remarked. I appreciate their importance. 
Here is my monograph upon the tracing of footsteps, with some remarks upon the uses of plaster of Paris as a preserver of impresses. Here, too, is a curious little work upon the influence of a trade upon the form of the hand, with lithotypes of the hands of sailors, cork cutters, compositors, weavers, and diamond polishers. That is a matter of great practical interest to the scientific detective, especially in discovering the antecedents of criminals. But I weary you with my hobby. Not at all, I answered earnestly. It is of the greatest interest to me, especially since I have had the opportunity of observing your practical application of it. But you spoke just now of observation and deduction. Surely the one to some extent implies the other. Why, hardly, he answered, leaning back luxuriously in his armchair and sending up thick blue wreaths from his pipe. For example, observation shows me that you have been to the Wigmore Street post office this morning. But deduction lets me know that when there, you dispatched a telegram. Right, said I right on both points, but I confess that I don't see how you arrived at it. It was a sudden impulse upon my part, and I have mentioned it to no one. It is simplicity itself, he remarked, chuckling at my surprise. So absurdly simple that an explanation is superfluous and yet it may serve to define the limits of observation and of deduction. Observation tells me that you have a little reddish mold adhering to your instep. Just opposite the Seymour Street office, they have taken up the pavement and thrown up some earth which lies in such a way that it is difficult to avoid treading it in entering. The earth is of this peculiar reddish tint, which is found, as far as I know, nowhere else in the neighborhood. So much is observation. The rest is deduction. How then did you deduce the telegram? Why, of course, I knew that you had not written a letter since I sat opposite to you all morning. I see also in your open desk that you have a sheet of stamps and a thick bundle of postcards. What could you go into the post office for then but to send a wire? Eliminate all other factors and the one which remains must be the truth. Well, in this case it certainly is so, I replied. After a little thought, the thing, however, is, as you say, of the simplest. Would you think of me impertinent if I were to put your theories to a more severe test? Please do, he answered. I have heard you say 
that it is difficult for a man to have any object in daily use without leaving the impress of his individuality upon it in such a way that a trained observer might read it. Now, I have here a watch which has recently come into my possession. Would you have the kindness to let me have an opinion upon the character or habits of the late owner? I handed him over the watch with some slight feeling of amusement in my heart, for the test was, as I thought, an impossible one, and I intended it as a lesson against the somewhat dogmatic tone which he occasionally assumed. He balanced the watch in his hand, gazed hard at the dial, opened the bag, and examined the works, first with his naked eyes, and then with a powerful convex lens. I could hardly keep from smiling at his crestfallen face when he finally snapped the case too and handed it back. There are hardly any data, he remarked. The watch has been recently cleaned, which robs me of most suggestive facts. You are right, I answered. It was cleaned before being sent to me. In my heart, I accused my companion of putting forward a most lame and impotent excuse to cover his failure. What data could he expect from an uncleaned watch? Though unsatisfactory, my research has not been entirely barren, he observed, staring up at the ceiling with dreamy lackluster eyes. Subject to your correction, I should judge that the watch belonged to your elder brother, who inherited it from your father. That you gather, no doubt, from the H.W. upon the back. Quite so. The W. suggests your own name. The date of the watch is nearly fifty years back, and the initials are as old as the watch, so it was made for the last generation. Jewelry usually descends to the eldest son, and he is most likely to have the same name as the father. Your father has, if I remember right, been dead many years. It has therefore been in the hands of your eldest brother. Right, said I. Anything else? He was a man of untidy habits, very untidy and careless. He was left with good prospects, but he threw away his chances, lived for some time in poverty with occasional short intervals of prosperity, and finally, taking to drink, he died. That is all I can gather. I sprang from my chair and limped impatiently about the room with considerable bitterness in my heart. This is unworthy of you, Holmes, I said. I could not believe that you would have descended to this. 
You have made inquiries into the history of my unhappy brother, and now you pretend to deduce this knowledge in some fanciful way? You cannot expect me to believe that you have read all this from his old watch. It is unkind. And, to speak plainly, has a touch of charlatanism in it. My dear doctor, said he, kindly, pray accept my apologies. Viewing the matter as an abstract problem, I had forgotten how personal a thing it might be to you. I assure you, however, that I never even knew that you had a brother until you handed me the watch. Then how in the name of all that is wonderful did you get these facts? They are absolutely correct in every particular. Ah, that is good luck. I could only say what was the balance of probability. I did not at all expect to be so accurate. But it was not mere guesswork. No, no, I never guess. It is a shocking habit, destructive to the logical faculty. What seems strange to you is only so because you do not follow my train of thought or observe the small facts upon which large inferences may depend. For example, I began by stating that your brother was careless. When you observe the lower part of that watch case, you notice that it is not only dented in two places, but it is cut and marked all over from the habit of keeping other hard objects, such as coins or keys, in the same pocket. Surely, it is no great feat to assume that a man who treats a fifty-guinea watch so cavalierly must be a careless man. Neither is it a very far-fetched inference that a man who inherits one article of such value is pretty well provided in other respects. I nodded to show that I followed his reasoning. It is very customary for pawnbrokers in England when they take a watch to scratch the number of the ticket with a pinpoint upon the inside of the case. It is more handy than a label and there is no risk of the number being lost or transposed. There are no less than four such numbers visible to my lens on the inside of this case. Inference that your brother was often at low water. Secondary inference that he had occasional bursts of prosperity, or he could not have redeemed the pledge. Finally, I ask you to look at the inner plate, which contains the keyhole. Look at the thousands of scratches all around the keyhole, marks where the key has slipped. What sober man's key could have scored those grooves? But, you will never see a drunkard's watch without them. He winds it at night, and he leaves these traces of his unsteady hand. Where is the mystery in all this?
It is as clear as daylight, I answered. I regret the injustice which I did you. I should have had more faith in your marvelous faculty. May I ask whether you have any professional inquiry on foot at present? None. I cannot live without brain work. What else is there to live for? Stand at the window here. Was ever such a dreary, dismal, unprofitable world? See how the yellow fog swirls down the street and drifts across the dun-colored houses. What could be more hopelessly prosaic and material? What is the use of having powers when one has no field upon which to exert them? Crime is commonplace. Existence is commonplace. And no qualities save those which are commonplace have any function upon earth. I had opened my mouth to reply to this tirade, when, with a crisp knock, our landlady entered, bearing a card upon the brass salver. A young lady for you, sir, she said, addressing my companion. Miss Mary Morstan, he read. Hmm. I have no recollection of the name. Ask the young lady to step up. Mrs. Hudson. Don't go, doctor. I should prefer that you remain. Chapter 2 The Statement of the Case Miss Morstan entered the room with a firm step and an outward composure of manner. She was a blonde, young lady, small, dainty, well-gloved, and dressed in the most perfect taste. There was, however, a plainness and a simplicity about her costume which bore with it a suggestion of limited means. The dress was a somber, grayish beige, untrimmed and unbraided, and she wore a small turban of the same dull hue, relieved only by a suspicion of white feather in the side. Her face had neither regularity of feature nor beauty of complexion, but her expression was sweet and amiable, and her large blue eyes were singularly spiritual, and sympathetic. In an experience of women which extends over many nations and three separate continents, I have never looked upon a face which gave a clearer promise of a refined and sensitive nature. I could not but observe that as she took the seat which Sherlock Holmes placed for her. Her lip trembled, her hand quivered, and she showed every sign of intense inward agitation. I have come to you, Mr. Holmes, 
she said. Because you once enabled my employer, Mrs. Cecile Forrester, to unravel a little domestic complication. She was much impressed by your kindness and skill. Mrs. Cecile Forrester, he repeated thoughtfully. I believe that I was of some slight service to her. The case, however, as I remember it, was a very simple one. She did not think so. But at least you cannot say the same of mine. I can hardly imagine anything more strange, more utterly inexplicable than the situation in which I find myself. Holmes rubbed his hands, and his eyes glistened. He leaned forward in his chair with an expression of extraordinary concentration upon his clear-cut, hawk-like features. State your case, said he, in brisk business tones. I felt that my position was an embarrassing one. You will, I am sure, excuse me, I said, rising from my chair. To my surprise, the young lady held up her gloved hand to detain me. If your friend, she said, would be good enough to stop, he might be of service to me. I relapsed into my chair. Briefly, she continued, the facts are these. My father was an officer in an Indian regiment who sent me home when I was quite a child. My mother was dead and I had no relative in England. I was placed, however, in a comfortable boarding establishment at Edinburgh, and there I remained until I was seventeen years of age. In the year 1878, my father, who was senior captain of his regiment, obtained twelve months' leave and came home. He telegraphed to me from London that he had arrived all safe and directed me to come down at once, giving the Lingham Hotel as his address. His message, as I remember, was full of kindness and love. On reaching London, I drove to the Langham and was informed that Captain Morstan was staying there, but that he had gone out the night before and had not yet returned. I waited all day without news of him. That night, on the advice of the manager, I communicated with the police, and next morning we advertised in all the papers. Our inquiries led to no result, and from that day, 
to this, no word has ever been heard of my unfortunate father. He came home with his heart full of hope to find some peace, some comfort, and instead she put her hand to her throat and a choking sob cut short the sentence. The date, asked Holmes, opening his notebook. He disappeared upon the 3rd of December, 1878, nearly ten years ago. His luggage? Remained at the hotel. There was nothing in it to suggest a clue. Some clothes, some books, and a considerable number of curiosities from the Andaman Islands. He had been one of the officers in charge of the convict guard there. Had he any friends in town? Only one that we know of. Major Sholto, of his own regiment, the 34th Bombay Infantry. The Major had retired some little time before and lived at Upper Norwood. We communicated with him, of course, but he did not even know that his brother officer was in England. A singular case remarked Holmes. I have not yet described to you the most singular part. About six years ago, to be exact, upon the 4th of May, 1882, an advertisement appeared in the Times asking for the address of Miss Mary Morstan and stating that it would be to her advantage to come forward. There was no name or address appended. I had at that time just entered the family of Mrs. Cecile Forrester in the capacity of governess. By her advice, I published my address in the advertisement column. The same day, there arrived through the post a small cardboard box addressed to me, which I found to contain a very large and lustrous pearl. No word of writing was enclosed. Since then, every year upon the same date, there has always appeared a similar box containing a similar pearl without any clue as to the sender. They have been pronounced by an expert to be of a rare variety and of considerable value. You can see for yourselves that they are very handsome. She opened a flat box as she spoke and showed me six of the finest pearls that I had ever seen. Your statement is most interesting, said Sherlock Holmes. Has anything else occurred to you? Yes, 
and no later than today. That is why I have come to you. This morning, I received this letter, which you will perhaps read for yourself. Thank you, said Holmes. The envelope too, please. Postmark, London. Date, July 7th. Man's thumb mark on corner. Probably postman. Best quality paper. Envelopes at sixpence a packet. Particular man in his stationery. No address. Be at the third pillar from the left outside the Lyceum Theater tonight at seven o'clock. If you are distrustful, Bring two friends. You are a wronged woman and shall have justice. Do not bring police. If you do, all will be in vain. Your unknown friend. Well, really, this is very pretty little mystery. What do you intend to do, Miss Morstan? That is exactly what I wanted to ask you. Then we shall most certainly go. You and I, and yes, why, Dr. Watson is the very man. Your correspondent says two friends. He and I have worked together before. But would he come? She asked, with something appealing in her voice and expression. I should be happy and proud, said I, fervently, if I can be of any service. You are both very kind, she answered. I have led a retired life and have no friends whom I could appeal to. If I am here at six, it will do, I suppose. You must not be later, said Holmes. There is one other point, however. Is this handwriting the same as that upon the pearl box addresses? I have them here, she answered, producing half a dozen pieces of paper. You are certainly a model client. You have the correct intuition. Let us see now. He spread out the papers upon the table and gave little darting glances from one to the other. They are disguised hands, except the letter, he said presently. But there can be no question as to the authorship. See how the irrepressible Greek E will break out and see the twirl of the final S. They are undoubtedly by the same person. I should not like to suggest false hopes, Miss Morstan. But is there any resemblance between this hand and that of your father? Nothing could be more unlike. I expected to hear you say so. We shall look out for you, then, 
at six. Pray, allow me to keep the papers. I may look into the matter before then. It is only half past three. Goodbye, then. Goodbye, said our visitor. And with a bright, kindly glance from one to the other, she placed her pearl box in her bosom and hurried away. I watched her walking briskly down the street until the gray turban and white feather were but a speck in the somber crowd. What a very attractive woman, I exclaimed, turning to my companion. He had lit his pipe again and was leaning back with drooping eyelids. Is she? he said, languidly. I did not observe. You really are an automaton, a calculating machine. I cried. There is something positively inhuman in you at times. He smiled gently. It is of the first importance, he said, not to allow your judgment to be biased by personal qualities. A client is to me a mere unit, a factor in a problem. The emotional qualities are antagonistic to clear reasoning. I assure you that the most winning woman I ever knew was hanged for poisoning three children for their insurance money, and the most repellent man of my acquaintance is a philanthropist who has spent nearly a quarter of a million upon the London poor. In this case, however, I asked. I never make exceptions, he said. An exception disproves the rule. Have you ever had occasion to study character and handwriting? What do you make of this fellow's scribble? It is legible and regular. I answered, a man of business habits and some force of character. Holmes shook his head. Look at his long letters, he said. They hardly rise above the common herd. That D might be an A and that I an E. Men of character always differentiate their long letters, however legibly they may write. I'm going out now. I have some few references to make. Let me recommend this book, one of the most remarkable ever penned. It is Winwood Reed's Martyrdom of Man. I shall be back in an hour. I sat in the window with the volume in my hand, but my thoughts were far from the daring speculations of the writer. My mind ran upon our late visitor, her smiles, 
the deep, rich tones of her voice, the strange mystery which overhung her life. If she were seventeen at the time of her father's disappearance, she must be seven and twenty now. A sweet age, when youth has lost its self-consciousness and become a little sobered by experience. So I sat and mused until such dangerous thoughts came into my head that I hurried away to my desk. What was I, an army surgeon with a weak leg and a weaker banking account, that I should dare to think of such things? She was a unit, a factor nothing more. If my future were black, it was better surely to face it like a man than to attempt to brighten it by mere will-o'-the-wisps of the imagination.